This is Bioflash. The focus for us has always been do great science with great people and focus on patients. The real mission is to say we're curing 20%. How do we make that 40? How do we make that 60? If you can't change clinical practice in a way that improves outcomes for patients and lowers the cost of care, you may as well not start. Part of being at a small startup biotech company is how quickly we can, we can move. If Roche can buy Genentech, if Pfizer can buy Wyeth, any motivated party can buy anybody else. Welcome to BioFlash, the podcast about the San Francisco Bay Area's biotech ecosystem. I'm Ron Ludy, the biotech reporter at the San Francisco Business Times. A little more than a year ago, I wrote a set of stories about depression in the workplace. It was eye-opening to me, not only the issue of depression, how workplace policies can help or hinder people diagnosed with depression, and, and the low reimbursement rates that insurance plans offer practitioners, but also how new technologies are being deployed in the neurobehavioral space. One of those companies emerging from stealth mode uh, over the past year has been Blackthorn Therapeutics. The San Francisco company emerged little more than a year ago with a Series A funding round of $40 million led by Arch Venture Partners. Its lead drug, BTRX246040, was licensed from Eli Lilly, where it failed two clinical trials, but Blackthorn sees the drug as a way to target a protein in the brain that regulates, among other things, the good feeling we get when we do something good. It's in a mid-stage clinical trial right now. The company has been hiring too, including the summer's hiring of Atul Mehablay-Schwarkar as Vice President of Clinical Development. We talked with him a couple of months ago, so you'll hear some questions from our intern at the time, Alejandra Reyes-Villardi, now a reporter at the Los Angeles Times. So here's our interview. Enjoy. Let's start with this platform, with Inform. What's advanced in technology, maybe, to allow Blackthorn to get these insights? I think one thing I do have to say is that it's not that all of the advances are all due to or generated by Blackthorn. Mm -hmm. Uh, The people who were smart enough to start the company, and since it's not me, I can be very (laughs) generous in my praise of them. Uh, were able to recognize the various advances that have happened, uh, which included advances in brain imaging, along with changes in sort of uh, overall uh, data analyses and in being able to put together uh, data from different sources, different sources, and the availability of a larger amount of data sets uh, in the public domain than they were earlier on. It's a combination of all of those put together along with some proprietary uh, uh, data 
mining, data gathering, data analytic uh, approaches and insights, that uh, Blackthorn has been able to combine all of those into being able to try and parse out what happens when patients have neurobehavioral psychiatric illnesses. To give you an example how confusing that might be, now imagine if I had to give somebody a diagnosis of depression, right? Well, you could either have a sad mood or you could have no mood, as in a lack of interest. Mm -hmm. Both would qualify to be a depression. You could either be sleeping more or sleeping less. You could either be eating more or eating less. You could either have uh, uh, more energy or you could be sort of dull and lethargic. And any of those combinations could still lead to a single diagnosis of depression. And it's the Blackthorn approach that is focused on being able to identify a smaller subset of patients. Uh, and again, using the INFORM approach, using sort of digital technology, using continuously monitored, passive monitored wearable technologies, using uh, smartphones, cell phones applications, using uh, sort of uh, neurobehavioral tests that are done sitting in front of a computer, uh, using clinical uh, information, and kind of putting it all together to be able to say, you know, instead of a major depressive disorder, which would be the formal FDA approval indication, uh, we would also be able to take a look at and say, well, there is a smaller group that would respond well to this particular drug that we are developing because this particular drug targets a certain kind of brain region and dysfunction in certain circuits, mm -hmm. which lead to certain kinds of symptoms. That's, in a sense, Blackthorn's approach. How important is the, is the imaging and seeing the patient through this process and being able to put them in, in the right smaller bucket? The imaging is an extremely important and crucial part of it. The piece that I would like to uh, sort of, uh, that, that I want to say is that uh, on a regular real-time basis, uh, some of the more sophisticated imaging approaches and uh, methodologies, while they lead themselves to very finer differentiation of patients, but if you think of being able to treat patients in real life all over the country, all over the world, to an extent, they're unrealistic. Uh, you would not expect to find a, an fMRI or a PET scanning center in, uh, uh, say, Paris, Texas, right? right. right? Uh, or, you know, any smaller places. So we have to think about patients that are living all over the country, people that are living all over the country. And so the imaging is an approach to be able to identify the regions of interest, circuits of interest that may or may not be working right. And then at the same time, do the tests, the neurobehavioral tests, the continuously monitoring tests, because you may not have a fMRI center in Spokane, Washington, but people have cell phones, people have smartphones. So be able to translate that to uh, data that can be generated and identified using these methods, which anybody can use or any person can use sitting in a, in a, in a physician's in a therapist's office to diagnose patients. That's the goal. If you develop a drug, but it can only work if the right people will take it at the right time.
And the approach that we hope to be able to do is to be able to develop drugs and or maybe even treatments for the right patients that can be used all over mm-hmm. and not just confine ourselves to a, a drug development, which is difficult as it is, but right. this makes it even more difficult, right. but challenging. And you, you've actually jumped way ahead of me because I was thinking, okay, are you developing you know, in, along the cancer model? Uh, and the personalized personalized medicine model that's often used in cancer to get the right drug to the right patient at the right time, but you know, in in neurological space, it's almost to the right person, to the right patient at the right time in the right part of the brain. Yes, <laughs> yes, and you know, while uh, delivering something to the right part of the brain as in physical location of the brain would be extremely difficult but in understanding that uh, uh, our brain has sort of you know diff- many 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 different kinds of uh, cells and uh, neurons uh, and they are not present in the same way all over uh, in all regions of the brain they are not present in the same amounts not only that but it is not just a matter of where the physical uh, cell body of a of a neuron is located, but where all is it spend sending its connections mm-hmm. to which parts of the brain and how they are interconnected? It's the connections and where they lead to, which could ultimately lead you to saying that there are these circuits which are not functioning quite the way they should, and which is what we would be looking to identify. The and the, which is where the structural and functional imaging approaches come in. So you're trying to more precisely distinguish like different neurobiological um, disorders, but what about when there is an overlap? That's actually uh, a very smart question. And the answer is that there is an overlap because there are similar sort of symptoms or similar dysfunctions in many different psychiatric diseases. For instance, take something like depression. You know, when I'd mentioned earlier that you could either have a sad mood or you could have a non-reactive no mood or not have an interest or pleasure. That's called anhedonia, a lack of interest. So that's there in depression. But you also see that in patients with schizophrenia. You could also see that in patients with uh, Parkinson's disease. You could also see that in patients with Alzheimer's disease. So while there may be variations on this theme of anhedonia, but that concept of a lack of interest in your activities that previously you were interested in and gave you pleasure is a big feature that goes across different diagnoses. And so that is certainly something that we are studying. So the depression study that we are currently running right now We are going to be separately looking at patients who have anhedonia and those who don't have anhedonia. And we will be trying to target that circuit. And people who have anhedonia, the current thinking is that their response to a reward, and, you know, when reward, it it gets to be seen as a a sort of, as a term that gets used. So it's not a reward as in you're getting a reward for doing something. But the response to an activity which in some way gives you some benefit, some pleasure immediately in the short term, in the long term. That response is dysfunctional. And that is, there is a circuit that gets tied to that. 
and uh, Blackthorn is uh, studying that approach, that circuit, and some of the work we do in our clinical trials, some of the work we do in collaboration with uh, academicians around the country uh, that we work with and help and support so that ultimately this is not something that Blackthorn as a company that we by ourselves can do. We will be working with, uh, uh, with uh, investigators, with academicians, with other people to do a number of things which collectively will be able to get us to this, to the point where we can say, to get back to your question of, you know, that there are similar things across different illnesses that we would be able to identify. So I, I know you're on the clinical side of things, but yes. um, Blackthorn emerged last year out of stealth and before you, you were there but with the $40 million Series A. Um, it, why, why does there appear to be some more investor interest in the space? What's, what's bringing the money in? And after years in the space yourself, uh, how encouraging is that? Well, I think the reason for the interest from the investors was a combination of uh, uh, the assets that Blackthorn have, uh, which are from generated from scripts, mm -hmm. uh, but also has a very uh, sort of active and a good internal discovery group as well, looking at discovery chemistry. So that it's uh, the the investment interest I would imagine came from knowing that have good assets and good people working to generate new assets. But I think it also came from the fact that uh, there is a promise of, a, of an approach which would be focused and targeted, which would yield better results because, uh, as you well know, uh, developing drugs as it is is very difficult with a very high failure rate, and particularly for brain diseases, that is even higher. It's among the worst. So when you have an organization and very smart people who are able to work to uh, identify and target and focus uh, de development activities and discovery activities to where you are able to be targeting approaches and symptoms, uh, that was where I would imagine the interest must have uh, developed from. Not being a part of it, I don't know for sure, but... I can see how that would be of interest. You've got to have some encouragement, though, on the clinical side of things, very similar to the encouragement that uh, are encouraging signs that investors see. I mean, Absolutely. How, how have things maybe really accelerated in the last five or ten years that you've seen? You know, uh, the things that have happened, certainly in the, in the CNS ecosystem, it's been gradually building up. Uh, over a period of time. And I can point out to a few different things done uh, sort of elsewhere, which have generated the interest in the uh, investor community for being able to invest in things. So uh, things like uh, the SAGE de therapeutics dr development for uh, uh, whether it was for the status epilepticus drug or for the uh, uh, pregnenolone development for uh, postpartum depression with very dramatic results. The development of ketamine and ketamine uh, analogs for as a rapidly acting antidepressant, 
where you've got uh, J&J, you've got Allergan who are actively invested in and programs that are in phase three that are going on. So those kind of point to investors to say that this is not all a black box and money that is uh, going nowhere right. and not, not re- giving any returns. So it, it is those things in, in clinical development which give me, uh, which certainly have given me great encouragement because I've certainly uh, seen both failures and success and have, uh, to a certain extent, kind of semi-facetiously say that I've been the beneficiary of uh, a more than $100 million in tuition in failed programs, which <laughs> somebody else uh, paid, but that we were able to learn from those failures and convert those into successes and get new drugs to market. Mm-hmm. To, to what extent is Blackthorn and, and others in the space, uh, are they using um, machine learning um, algorithms, all of that. You see that cutting across disease areas. But is that even happening more so in the brain? It most certainly is happening more so. And I think uh, uh, not only is it happening, but there is a community going around it. There are uh, uh, people that work together, get together both individually, and not all of it is necessarily in the the words you had used earlier, stealth mode, so to Mm -hmm. speak. But there are actually places where such people get together and uh, uh, while not necessarily divulging their uh, machine learning approaches and the engines that they build in to do that, but discuss about how things get done that work towards it. So one such instance is uh, there's a conference called the CNS Summit that I'm uh, one of the founding members of. I've been around seven years now, going on to eight years, which gets people in together to where we are as a, as a community, sort of collaborating in pre-competitive spaces. Mm. While we would compete when it's our molecules that come in, but it's a pre-competitive collaboration looking at uh, uh, sort of uh, machine learning approaches. And the other development is the availability of large data sets. So whether it's the new meds initiative in Europe or uh, companies like uh, J&J, GSK, Eli Lilly, Uh, that have a commitment to releasing their data on an individual patient level from work that has been done to outsiders to be able to ask and interrogate those data and ask specific questions and combine these data sets with with the machine learning approaches, with the deep learning approaches that are initially starting off with a theoretical models but then are able to continue to move forward to generate uh, both uh, new sort of uh, targets for either discovery or development of drugs or being able to subset patients into uh, better treatment approaches. You mentioned molecules. Um, Mm -hmm. You have a specific drug, Mm -hmm. BTRX246040. Yes, that Um, is correct. where does that stand? I, I think I saw mid-stage phase two trial enrolling. Yes. Now, yes. So where where does that stand? When do you look for a readout? What are you targeting there? And maybe what's the mechanism of action? Certainly, uh, I'll start with answering your last question first. It is a what is called as a nociceptin receptor antagonist, which in uh, I'll try it, which in English <laughs> sort of means it is a newly discovered receptor in the opioid system 
which does not uh, which is not in the same family as opioids of abuse or addiction so there is no uh, abuse liability it does not give people a high Mm-hmm. Uh, so it's a, it's a different, and so it is new in the sense that this was uh, discovered in the mid '90s. So it's it's a new receptor, and it is localized in sort of specific regions of the brain, which are uh, which help with sort of reward dependence. So sort of, you know it has uh, in sort of uh, symptoms of you know maybe anxiety, maybe appetite. So it works in a few different systems in there, but that's kind of the system that it works in. Uh, the study itself uh, ha- is now in phase two. So there is a phase two trial which is up and ongoing, and we are actively recruiting patients. Uh, the goal, the, the, the traditional target is we are looking at a population of patients with major depressive disorder, but we are selectively going to be studying anhedonia. So we talked about the symptom of where there is a lack of interest or pleasure in previous activities that were previously interesting or pleasurable, which is seen to be a smaller set of patients with depression. And we would be studying those looking at uh, both uh, standardized clinical methods, but also computer-based assessments to check, to assess uh, reward dependence, and to also assess how quickly you're able to identify emotions on people's faces. Mm-hmm. Then moving on, we would be collecting data from uh, uh, active digital apps, as well as passive data collection, and look at all of those uh, over the course of the trial. And uh, we hope to have uh, all of these done and reported out uh, the, the challenge, I think, that we need to be very careful of in looking at studies with depression is you have to be able to get the right kind of patients in the trial. So the right diagnosis uh, and the right sort of duration of illness, the right severity of illness. What happens is uh, you can have a f- feeling of a sad mood or depression for many different reasons not all of which may necessarily be a biologically brain illness-based diagnosis. Right. And doing that can sometimes take uh, a long time. So there have been studies that have been involved in where you, we have had of 100 patients coming in to saying, I'm willing to sign up for the study, and you run through initial assessments, and 70 of those are not have the right kind of depression. So that takes time, and we need to be sure that we're enrolling the right set of patients for us to be able to give us these answers. And so we'll have those answers uh, in the next uh, couple of years, year or two, in Mm -hmm. drug development takes time. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So as and when we get the answers, we certainly will be reporting those out. A lot of people are scared of, like, um, drugs that target like mental health problems or there's like a stigma attached to it? Is that something that you guys are thinking about or that will be a challenge? Stigma is certainly a huge deal uh, for, certainly for treatment, no doubt about it, uh, but also for uh, developing drugs to making sure that people do volunteer in clinical trials. Uh, 
uh, I think even now if we estimate uh, common illnesses, not everybody who has an illness goes to see somebody for it. Not everybody who goes to see somebody will get a diagnosis. Not everybody who gets a diagnosis will necessarily be given treatment, nor will they be taking it. So that is, is that certainly is a major part of it. Uh, I think uh, the other part of it, as you quite rightly pointed out, is uh, for concerns for us, uh, because ultimately uh, we cannot develop a drug unless there are qualified, appropriate patients who are willing to give their time and and energy and effort and be willing to be a part of randomized clinical trials. We cannot do that without them. And uh, so there are, again, uh, uh, and that's too big of a problem for any individual company to solve. And certainly, Blackthorn is a small player. You know, we are a startup, we are a small company, you know, we do not have the 100,000 people that are working at Johnson & Johnson, for instance, you know, however many there are, I'm just throwing out a number, but we don't have that. Uh, but we can be a small contributor and a part of uh, uh, groups that are doing things. So, for instance, there is, uh, again, this meeting that I'd mentioned, the CNS Summit, uh, there is a, a part of it which is a patient advocacy group. Uh, that uh, comes together called the Star Organist, Star Foundation, which will be working to uh, work with patients and to uh, eliminate the stigma, to encourage patients to come in. Because it is, in a sense, it is a benefit for all of us. Because if we have the right kind of patients, we will be better able to identify whether a molecule will work or not. It's been a very uh, exciting change, personally, for me uh, to come into an organization like Blackthorn. And uh, after I was here about a month, uh, you know, somebody asked me, what do you think about it? Any regrets, any second thoughts? Would you like to go back uh, uh, to uh, the world that you were familiar with? And I was absolutely, no. This is, this is exciting because... Uh, uh, to an end, to a, to an extent, it is kind of at the cutting edge of I think where the future is going to be, mm -hmm. and uh, it's uh, absolutely phenomenal to be able to be a part of shaping the future. And uh, I'm actually looking forward more to getting to learn more about the uh, biotech ecosystem in the Bay Area uh, and be a part of it, and not just be a cog in uh, in Blackthorn but to be a part of the larger community to understand what else is going on and contribute and looking forward to it. Right, right. It's got to be exciting. Uh, do, you, do you feel like you can uh, shape the discussion more at a smaller Blackthorn than a larger Takeda? Most certainly. Uh, most certainly. Not only can I shape uh, the discussion more, but uh, the decisions also tend to get made uh, uh, sooner there are less layers. As an example, I think uh, uh, there was a time when I was working on a molecule which was a part of two different companies working together. And to get, uh, a say, a study or a protocol or a concept approved, I sat down and counted. There were 11 different committees that I had to go, to, go through. Wow. Whereas here, uh, you know, something comes up, we are running a study, and we're running a study, and kind of something came along, and I said, you know, we should be doing a little something else differently. 
So there were four people that I talked to uh, who, you know, certainly scrutinized the idea, but said, no, you know, this sounds reasonable. Go ahead. Mm-hmm. So you can certainly shape it uh, uh, at a smaller company much better. I also hope to be able to contribute to the larger system as well. So mm-hmm. do what I can where I'm at in the company and also outside. Thanks for listening to this latest episode of BioFlash. Be sure to follow our daily coverage of the Bay Area's biotech industry at SanFranciscoBusinessTimes.com. And you can follow me and give me your feedback and tips on Twitter at rludy, that's R-L-E-U-T-Y underscore biotech. BioFlash is produced by Kevin Trong.